0: Today, I welcome Alice Lucas, Headmistress at St. Helens School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss promoting digital intelligence in education, the coaching model, discussions around everyone's invited movement, and forward-thinking education. I want to talk about your role at school and obviously your your ideas around education, and it's, it's the whole kind of premise around getting leaders in education on this podcast. What roles do schools play in ensuring that students have the skills to meet the future demands of the digital world?
1: Mm, but I mean, schools have a massive role, I think. Parents really want to hand over that responsibility to schools. I think they feel quite in awe of their own children because they know so much more about technology often than they do. Plus, the future of technology is really scary for parents because we have no idea really what it's going to look like. So how can they prepare their own children for that? Plus, you know, online safety and being kind of digitally ethical and, and moral. You know, these are really big questions and actually schools, you know, especially, you know, we're an all-through school, so we go from four to 18 and we can really slowly, you know, develop that, those skills and that knowledge and that understanding and work with the children so that they can develop that digital intelligence, which is a slow evolutionary process over the years. And if schools don't do that, then what they're doing is not setting up their students for future success, because being technically savvy, being technologically confident, being able to deal with digital innovation and creativity, and we don't know what the digital age is going to throw at them in the future, and they need to be ready. And if we don't prepare them for that, then they're not going to get the jobs that they want, and they're not going to lead the lives that they want, and they're not going to be able to access the information they want or express themselves in the way that they want. So it's the onus is on schools to do that. And schools, I think, are the best placed to do that. And some schools do that better than others, I think.
0: How much control do you get over the curriculum to shape this? Because a lot of the problems about obviously preparing the kids for a future we cannot imagine, and we're talking about the digital divide, is curriculum. And I just wondered what things you put in place to ensure that there is a modern curriculum that can help them do that?
1: In terms of developing digital intelligence, it's less to do with the curriculum and the content and much more to do with how the curriculum is delivered and how the learning is approached. And every school uses blended learning now to a greater or lesser extent. And every teacher has become so much more skilled at blended learning. I mean, here at St. Helens, every child has their own device. Every lesson is delivered with the option of using digital technology. So in terms of, you know, we can teach whatever we want because we're an independent school, Um, Obviously, we need to make sure that the children get some exam results as well and get the grades that they need to go to university. We have complete flexibility over the curriculum, but in terms of digital intelligence, it's really about methodology and approach and delivery more than content, I think. And
0: it's being open minded to recognize that, you know, that we need to pull our heads out the the sand as as adults, as teachers, as parents, because we need to be active role models. In understanding and taking interest in that do you think that education is currently effective in delivering that digital literacy to students and is it more widespread and more effective in the independent sector and has the, maybe the divide got bigger in the last 18 months
1: well resource is always a big factor isn't it To uh, independent schools do have more resource than the maintained sector. You know, we, are, we do have the capacity to be able to spend money not just on resourcing our children's curriculum, but also training our teachers. So I think that um, the independent sector has those advantages very much ingrained in it. But I think that all schools are doing a really good job with bridging those gaps. I think that British schools maybe were quite behind internationally in terms of valuing and acknowledging digital intelligence as, a key, as one of the key intelligences. And COVID has forced us to more than catch up. And certainly the digital revolution that's happened in my school, it's forced all the teachers to take on board, you know, this new kind of teaching and learning. And they're excited by it. And having been kind of forced into it, maybe out of their comfort zone more quickly than they would have liked, they're now embracing it and are excited about it and want to keep ahead of the curve. That's really good for teachers and really good for schools and good for children
0: massively important for the girls that you're trying to role model as well and we have to come out of our comfort zone you know we have to do things it's very easy when you become old and become stuck in our ways we like doing the things the way we do them because it's just easy and it's comfortable but being uncomfortable is actually about risk-taking
1: completely And, and also it's role modeling not necessarily knowing all the answers so you know on the rare occasions when i'm in the classroom and something goes wrong you know i'll ask the children to help me sort it out and that, you know, it's, it's a two-way process, isn't it? Everybody's a lifelong learner. You know, teachers are learning, teachers are evolving, and we're modelling that to the girls too. We don't have all the answers. There are some things that they know more about than us, and they know a lot more about being a teenager than us. So it's all part of that parcel.
0: And do you think that the divide has become wider the last 18 months between the state and the independent sector because of access to resources resources? You know, not just internally, but externally, i.e. the community, the parents that...
1: I mean, very much so. And in terms of our outreach programs and our partnerships with particularly state primaries, you know, we're seeing that gap and we feel even more of a kind of moral imperative to do our bit, to helping to close that gap. You know, we've been so lucky with what we've been able to do in terms of remote learning. There isn't a catch-up necessity. They haven't fallen behind with their learning. You know, obviously miserable being at home, learning from home. But they haven't lost out really intellectually or academically. They've lost out socially and pastorally. So uh, definitely the gap is, is much, much wider. And the girls here have been so lucky. And they know that. They they really have an understanding of that. And from that comes a responsibility.
0: And I know that the ISC and the GSC are doing a huge amount actually with outreach partnership programs. You know, beyond the traditional way of just lending resources or helping out, it's looking at wider ways in which you can share some of your ideas with the state sector, because there are the wider educational problems and it is probably our duty in the independent sector to
1: to help Although out. I, you know, having, having spent a lot of my career in the state sector, I, you know... Many, many, many of my better ideas come from my experiences in the state sector. And the state sector has an enormous amount to offer the independent sector in terms of tracking progress and judging outcomes and thinking about vulnerable groups and underperformance and intervention and quality first teaching. I mean, everybody has so much to gain out of that relationship. I mean, we've been doing lots of really quite exciting work using our primary staff to train our sixth formers in phonics and reading and vocabulary acquisition. And they've been going into our local primary schools and they've been working with four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds in developing their literacy skills and helping them catch up with their reading. And they come back and they're just so excited by having been, A, they've learned this new skill, and then they've been grown up enough to go off and, and make a difference to local children. And everybody wins from those encounters, everybody.
0: You're passionate about coaching or community and the coaching model. Can you tell me more about this?
1: You know, we're a great believer in if you tell a child to do something, it might not be as productive as helping a child work out what it is that she wants and what her aims are. And actually, Where you get to when you ask a child what she wants is often exactly the place that you want to get to. So we're all about using our coaching model to help the children work out where they are, where they want to be, who they are, exploring themselves, and then thinking in a very kind of supported and scaffolded way, how can that individual get to where she wants to be next and what are the next steps that she needs to make? So that it's coming from herself rather than being, you know, mentoring is great. It's being imposed from outside, whereas coaching is being very carefully and professionally and expertly kind of drawn out of you so that you're powering it. And we feel that that's what's going to really make the difference to the children, especially when they leave school, because they're going to have those strategies. They're going to keep those strategies and they're going to be able to apply them to you know, whatever situation they find themselves in, in later life. If you had to
0: invest more in training your staff to understand this model because it will be alien to a lot of people, not normal, not what they were used to? And how did that approach work?
1: So we've been working with um professional trainer with all our staff having the basic training and then groups of staff having level two and level three training. And we will continue with that We've had triads of teachers coaching each other, practicing those techniques. You know, we have invested a lot of money, but also time into working out how does this, the particular coaching model that we're using, how does it work and, and making the staff feel comfortable with using it. We asked our parents, did they support this idea? And the response was overwhelmingly yes, which I thought was pretty interesting and the children is about to start happening. So then we'll get some student voice and see what they think about it. And then hopefully we'll start seeing the outcomes in terms of happier children, more balanced children and children who are making more progress because it's going to help them academically as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, you talked about sort of outcomes. I mean, how do you measure the impact of this and, and how long does it take
1: we're going to be using reflection journals um, all the way through. So analysing those, I think, will tell us a large amount. I don't know, you know how often you speak to teenagers, but they tell you immediately, don't they, if they think something's any good. So I think we'll get immediate feedback, and then we'll get medium-term feedback, and we'll get long-term feedback. And my experience of student voice is that you ask the students the question, and you find out the answer. And it's very, if I want to know what's going on in my school, I go out and I ask the children. And they tell me absolutely directly what's going on.
0: And so none of this is tied to results that I think parents look for sometimes or get judged on. So
1: Well, happy children get good results. Children who know how to work out what the next steps are get good results. Children who don't flounder when things get tricky get good results. Children who have the kind of metacognition to work out how to solve a problem, good results are going to come in the slipstream of this, and the children's well-being is going to improve. I almost feel nervous about talking about it too publicly, because I think once other schools hear about this, every school is going to do it. And yes, that's going to be great for the children, but it's going to mean that our brilliant idea is um, no longer going to be our brilliant idea, and it won't necessarily set us apart from our competition which I think it does to a certain extent
0: now. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Can any and every school adopt a coaching model? or actually, Do you need a certain mindset as a leader to be able to put this into your school?
1: I passionately believe in it. My deputy head pastoral, who was leading on it to start with, she passionately believes in it. She leads the pastoral team across the school that really got buy-in from those pastoral leaders. You know, if people don't believe in something, then they might you know pay lip service to doing it, but they're not going to really do it. You know, all teachers want to get the most out of the children and want to do their best to realize potential. And, you know, if you, if you come from that starting point, then something that you can prove is going to do that eventually is going to be supported by all the staff, I think.
0: It really is this leadership and, you know, coaching model where, because it's a supportive model. There is no wrong answer. You know, you, you're helping people to get better at what they, about learning certain things and doing certain things. Um, St. Helens itself was founded in 1899, yet you're a forward-thinking school. Like many schools that have been founded a long time, how do you balance tradition with innovation?
1: Well, tradition is in the the kind of lifeblood of the school, and we were founded by one of those amazing kind of nineteenth-century women who believed passionately in women's education and that women could have jobs too, and women could be professionals and. And that's with us today, that's equality, that, that drives that we want women to be as successful as anybody else. And that is really at the core of what we're doing. and that kind of liberal education, so you know, broad and balanced, that creativity as well as as well as everything else. And then everything else, I think, is pretty modern and, and forward-looking. I mean, our buildings are all pretty modern. We have some pockets of our of our old self, but We've actually modernised nearly every nook and cranny at the school now. We look like a modern school. We act like a modern school. Yes, we have our traditions, but we're not a particularly traditional school, I don't think. And is it worth it for leaders to sacrifice tradition
0: for the sake of progressing the modern world and skills and everything that the modern world is asking of us?
1: Well, I guess it depends what is tradition giving you. And if, you know, tradition gives you a kind of grounding, it gives you principles, it gives you, you know, a real sense of where are you coming from and where do you want to go? Um, and that can, that can come from anywhere, can't it? And as long as you have that and you know your principles and you know what the school stands for, and there's a shared identity as to what everybody cares about and what everybody believes is important, whether it's traditional or whether it's forward-looking, it, I don't think it really matters. It's just got to be real and authentic and shared.
0: Authenticity is at the heart of every school. And you know, I know the independent sector goes out of its way to show all the opportunities available to to the children that come to one of the great schools. And sometimes in the marketing, maybe authenticity is lost. How do you make sure that your authentic voice is, is shared outwardly?
1: Well, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I think a lot of schools spend a great deal of money on marketing, and that has pitfalls in itself. I think that the people who come from outside to visit our school When they talk to our staff and they particularly talk to our children, I think that's where the authenticity will shine through. The children here are, by and large, they're pretty glorious children and they have a worldliness and a sophistication and and they are articulate. But it's also, you know, it's not too polished. It's not... There's something quite grounded and, and real about it. So I think that, that speaking to them is where that voice comes from. And, you know, a shiny brochure, well, I didn't really have much time for those things.
0: We're on exactly the same page on that, but because, you know, I, I visit hundreds of schools around the planet and you know, I'm always amazed how unique and individual they are. You know, as long as you can scratch beneath the surface, you know, you will share the same ambitions for what children should get in terms of access to education, what access they have to good role modeling. So they are really prepared to go out into this world that we're going to leave them. And is it going to be in good shape? And so the authentic voice has to come from within and it has to be told. And sometimes I know it's hard for schools to maybe get that voice out because they want control and control of, of the message. Is it on message? And I think the message thing is something that's very outdated because communities buy into to you, the girls, the teachers, the things that you do. So the more you can be open and share that, I think that's only got to be good. Everyone's invited, has been in the media a lot the last few months. What impact has had that on your community?
1: It's reinforced to us, you know, what a role we have um, in these important issues of the day. You know, the girls here, when I mean, we had all sorts of assemblies on What can we do? How can we contribute to making the world a better place in this particular area? And the girls themselves were really, really motivated and really inspired by, you know, Sarah Everard and the Everyone's Invited campaign. And I think that that's been really helpful. We did quite a lot on what can we do as individuals to, you know, in a small way, to make sure that sexism, which can lead to sexual harassment and worse, and what can we do to to make sure that we never condone anything, you know, a joke or a comment or something small that can turn into that. And the girls were very taken by that message and pretty excited by the fact that they could play their part. And We have a very active feminist forum, The girls shared their stories and and we made sure that they then received the support that was necessary. And I think it also just kind of created a really important opportunity just to remind the girls about these really important principles of consent. What is rape? What is sexual assault? What do you do if somebody does something to you that you do not want them to do? What is it to your disposal in terms of taking action with that and empowering you know, the, the girls' voices in terms of, of trying to make sure that these things don't happen to them?
0: The big bit, there was a report, and you know, really what stood out for me was that it's zero tolerance. You know, there was, you know, it cannot be, you know, never be accepted or not be tolerated, and that's obviously something that, that we need to, again, accept us as the teachers as the role models because the kids need somewhere to go we can't judge them or it's not banter it's not oh you know oh that's what just happens nowadays it's not there's a zero tolerance and that's the piece that that we've also got to adjust ourselves to has this been the catalyst we need to drive necessary conversations around sexual harassment and consent beyond your school in other schools
1: yeah we've had really interesting conversations with particularly local boys schools um, we're looking into organizing a conference for local boys and girls schools to you know, discuss these issues and workshops and speakers. And, and I think that it's been really helpful there. The girls here had all sorts of really good ideas about what should be in the PSHC lessons of the boys at the local boys schools. And in fact, one of our you know, our kind of local brother school, the head came and he spoke with um, a group of our six formers and he wanted to you know really explore their perceptions I think really helpful really helpful conversations you know not enough yet but we're moving in that direction so yes, yeah, useful.
0: Yeah and are schools wholly responsible for ensuring change happens?
1: Well no of course they're not but we can do our bit and we can do a lot I mean teachers roles have exponentially risen, haven't they, over the years and being responsible for, you know, fighting sexism and sexual exploitation and the banner of consent um, is now, you know, another an absolute tick on the list. And interestingly, in all, the, all the things that we've been reading about recently about peer-on-peer abuse. I mean, that's you know, really shocking and really, really important. And yes, schools have a massive part to play in these areas. And, and we need to live up to those expectations of playing our part.
0: It's always difficult because of technology, because we all walk around with these little black boxes that hold a lot of secrets none of us get to see, and we get to it late. And I think the Ofsted report this year was saying that leadership and teachers consistently underestimate the extent of the problem. Almost 90% of girls and 50% of boys report that they or their peers receive unwanted explicit photos or videos. So I think there's recognition, but this kind of everyone invited, you know, it, it sometimes needs a movement to raise headlines, but we can't just let it leave at headlines. We have to do something that's systemically changing what we do within schools and also i think parents big responsibility we're all caught up in it's not my problem until there's a problem they seem fine and
1: also my child would never do any of those things (laughs) well really (laughs) (laughs) they probably would
0: it is true it's completely true i mean i've got three teenagers and one who's is not quite there yet but so I've, i've kind of been through that whole piece seeing it boys and girls it is fascinating but you're right you know you say it's never my child We've got to have those open conversations and know that your children can come and talk to you about those things. So there's open lines of communications. They feel that their voice can be heard. They will not be judged. Is something that we need to do.
1: And assume the worst, I would say. I mean, that's what I say to my parents. Assume the worst and hope for the best.
0: Thanks ever so much, Alice. It's been it's been a fantastic half an hour. It's been really great to chat to you.
1: Thank you so much for, for talking to me and giving me the chance to I mean, think about these things in a, in, a, in a fresh way. So I really, really appreciate the time. You can connect with me on Twitter,
0: Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school
1: thinking now.